you know, you can't buy people happiness, you can't make people happy, but you can certainly educate them towards doing things that would contribute to their happiness, such as uh, being more uh, cognizant of the things that are meaningful to them, such as encouraging them to exercise more, such as teaching them about the importance of kindness, generosity, and appreciation. So these are all things that can contribute to happiness, and the way to bring more of them into our lives is through education. Now, I find it unfortunate that schools focus, seems like, everything but happiness. You know, they focus on history and biology and math and the sciences in general, and that's great. I think that's important. But why are schools almost entirely ignoring the science of well-being with an emphasis on science? Because today we know what we can do to increase levels of happiness. Why aren't schools? And when I say schools, I mean, yes, universities. And, you know, that's what we're doing. But no less important, perhaps even more important, elementary schools and even kindergartens. Why aren't they focusing more on uh, how can we attain happiness? We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark woods, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? So the guest on the podcast today is Tal Ben-Shorhar. Tal is a teacher and writer in the disciplines of positive psychology and leadership. So he came on my radar recently when I read about a master's degree in happiness studies that he developed at Centenary University in New Jersey. So I co-teach an interdisciplinary course at the University of Pittsburgh called Happiness and Human Flourishing, which is part of a broader movement to develop happiness courses at major universities across the country. So I was very interested in the work that he's doing. So we're talking today about this movement, happiness studies more generally, as well as Tall's MA program. So Tall, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. So when I read your work, one question I had is why do you use the term happiness rather than something like flourishing? The reason I ask is because it seems like the construct you're getting at is, you know, uh, Aristotelian eudaimonia, which is more consistent with what I would consider to be flourishing. So why do you use happiness instead of flourishing? Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, when I created the class on happiness, the certificate program or the master's degree on happiness, many of my colleagues and dear friends said to me, you know, use another term. You know, the term happiness is tainted. People have, you know, think about happiness and they think about uh, doing nothing on the beach or an ice cream or, or something superficial. And obviously that's not what I mean by happiness. But the reason why I insisted on the term is precisely because I wanted to have the conversation that we're having right now. So I wanted people to challenge that term and to talk about it because the term happiness once meant something very different. It's only today in our modern world that we think of happiness in the superficial manner. So, you know, when Bentham or Mill or Aristotle or Helen Keller, and they wrote a lot about happiness, they meant 
you know, happiness as a sense of meaning and purpose, happiness as, you know, the cultivation of healthy relationships, happiness as, as pursuing kindness and generosity. They included all these ideas within happiness. And I want to go back to that. So I want to redefine or actually go back to the original definition of happiness. And we can't do that if we don't talk about it. So if you're made happiness czar of the United States and you had to invest major funds in one thing, you got one shot to improve happiness, what would you invest in? So first of all, in education, hands down, you know, you can't buy people happiness. You can't make people happy, but you can certainly educate them towards doing things that would contribute to their happiness, such as being more cognizant of the things that are meaningful to them, such as encouraging them to exercise more, uh, such as uh, teaching them about the importance of kindness, generosity, and appreciation. So these are all things that can contribute to happiness, and the way to bring more of them into our lives is through education. Now, I find it unfortunate that schools focus seems like everything but happiness. You know, they focus on history and biology and math and the sciences in general, and that's great. I think that's important. But why are schools almost entirely ignoring the science of well-being with an emphasis on science? Because today we know what we can do to increase levels of happiness. Why aren't schools, and when I say schools, I mean, yes, universities, and, you know, that's what we're doing, but no less important, perhaps even more important Elementary schools and even kindergartens, why aren't they focusing more on uh, how can we attain happiness? So when you think about education, what's the role of information transfer versus habit formation? So when you think about education, is that sort of a classroom setting where we're giving students information about how to be happier or are you think sort of a more embodied habit formation as well? Yeah, so the answer is yes, meaning we need both. You know, information is important, but of course, if we want to live happier lives, information is not enough. We need transformation, which means uh, changing the way we act, which means changing the way we think. And that comes mostly through doing, through implementing the ideas. You know, people often come say to me, Tal, you know, we have your book next to our bed. And I say, wow, that's, that's wonderful, very flattering. And I say, and have you read it? And some of them say, yes, not all, but some say yes. And I say, and have you implemented the ideas there? Because that's the most important thing. You know, reading something, that doesn't contribute to happiness, just as, you know, reading about tennis doesn't make you a better tennis player. Reading about playing the piano doesn't make you a good pianist. You need to practice. You need to exercise. This applies to any skill whether it's music, whether it's sports, whether it's happiness. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this phenomena that we're seeing in the United States, these happiness courses at major universities. So there's a very high profile course at Yale. I'm sure you're familiar with this course that it was a highlight in the New York Times in the last few years. A team here at Pitt has, we've been trying to document um, these courses, find dozens and dozens, and I'm sure we're not even scratching the surface in terms of the number of happiness classes across the United States. They're often very popular and they often fill quite quickly. In fact, our class fills very quickly. This is only the second semester we've done it, so we have an end of two, but it has filled quite quickly. So why do you think these happiness courses have proven to be so popular with students in universities? You know, they're popular because of human nature, and human nature is that we all want to be happier 
And again, whether we define happiness as less pain or whether we define happiness as more pleasure or whether we define happiness as more meaning and purpose or help in, in our lives, we all want more of it. And again, this is a, obviously a generalization, but we as a society, we're unhappy. Uh, there's a more and more uh, depression and anxiety and levels of well-being have declined and unfortunately continue to decline. So there is people, you know, experience a real need for answers, answers to the question, how can I become happier or how can I deal with my sadness or how can I improve in general the quality of my life? And then when they're offered this course, and of course, these courses offer evidence-based scientific approach to happiness, then yeah, of course they'll take it. You know, if they were offered when I was an undergraduate, you know, I'd be the, the first to sign up as well. Right. So to what extent do you think this need for happiness classes or interest in happiness classes is the result of the abandonment of the liberal arts education in American universities? Yeah, that's a complicated question because, you know, there's a chicken and egg issue here. I think the liberal arts have neglected happiness over the years. So, you know, liberal, if you studied in, uh, you know, Aristotle's Lyceum or Plato's Academy, or if you were a student of, uh, you know, Confucius or Lao Tzu, or even if you had studied in many of the, most of the universities, you know, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, you would have studied a lot of happiness. Today, the liberal arts, and, you know, so I studied uh, philosophy as an undergrad. The two best courses that I took were with, one was with uh, Stanley Cavell, who was, you know, he passed away uh, recently. He taught a course called The Pursuits of Happiness, which was an incredible course where every week we would watch a movie, read a philosophical excerpt by Austin or Emerson or Nietzsche, and then we would discuss it. It was on happiness. And then I took an amazing course with a one-on-one course with Robert Nozick, who talked a great deal about happiness. But other than that, many of my courses were detached from my day-to-day life. You know, they were on logic, which I think is very important, of course. And there were analytical philosophy, which, you know, has merit and it helps our thinking. But our, the questions that we addressed were not questions of how can I live better? You know, and towards that end, I, I really refer our you know, listeners to the work of Elaine de Botton. And Elaine de Botton has done magnificent work on reestablishing philosophy as well as more specifically art to its right position, which is all about improving the quality of our lives. So if a philosophy class on ancient Greek philosophy or on modern philosophers could start with the question, How can these philosophers improve the quality of our lives? I think we'll have many more students and then there'll be less need for people to take classes specifically on happiness because they'd be addressing this in their, you know, intro to philosophy class anyway, or for that matter, by the way, history. You know, you look at the important work of Will Durant. Will Durant looked at history and valued history because he said it can teach us how to live better. It can teach our governments how to govern better. In other words, it was practical. And there is too much detachment in modern academic world, which I see as as really unfortunate. Right. And so the reason I ask that question is I I read a number of academics who are very interested in re-enlivening their liberal arts in the United States. And their arguments are very similar to the ones that you make and the ones we make in our class about why we do this happiness class and it's to help people live better and to live well. They would argue that 
And I've had these conversations that maybe we don't need happiness classes. What we need is to return to the good books and the big books that whose central object really was a life well lived. So I couldn't agree more. In fact, you know, at Centenary University, and this is the initiative of Dale Caldwell, who's the new president, we want to create a happiness continuum, as he puts it. And the happiness continuum means that we want to have a, right now we have a master's degree. We want to have a PhD offered, which is hopefully will launch in a year. And two years, we're hoping to launch a BA degree in happiness studies. Now, for all three, BA, MA, and PhD, our focus is the great ideas, you know, the great books. So we are going to read, well, we are reading Aristotle. We are reading Helen Keller. We are reading Lao Tzu and many other great works. So we'll return to your MA program in, in a little bit, but a few more questions just about this uh, general phenomenon that we're seeing in higher ed. So do you think the goal is in these happiness studies classes, courses, degrees, is to make students happier, to give them knowledge and skills to help others? Be happy? What do you think the object is? Again, the answer is yes. Right. It's both explicitly. So we explicitly talk about how this degree course or a certificate program, if they're taking the certificate, is about helping you become happier and about helping you help others do the same. Now, they are inevitably interconnected. Why? Because if we are to impact others, we have to start with ourselves. You know, Confucius talked about this, over, you know, almost 3000 years ago. He said, if you want to bring more harmony to your nation, you first have to bring more harmony to your city. If you want to bring more harmony to the city, you first have to bring more harmony to your neighborhood. You want to do it to your neighborhood? Start with your family. You want to start with your family, begin with a self. Right. Yeah. In other words, he created these concentric circles where the self is at the center and then expanding outward, you know, like a stone in water, the ripple effect. You have to start with a self. At the same time, when you're contributing to others, when you're helping others become happier, you're also helping yourself become happier because we know that one of the best ways of increasing levels of well being in yourself is through kindness and generosity, through helping others. So what do you think is one of the biggest barriers in the contemporary academy, in the university, that keeps students from flourishing or being happy in, in your parlance? What do you think the biggest barrier is? Yeah, I think that the detachment from their life is something that is actually making them unhappy because they see, okay, so we have our real life and then we have to get this paper in. Now, if they were writing this paper about something that is personally meaningful to them, and for most of us, our lives are personally meaningful to us, almost by definition, right, right. then they would feel much more engaged. You know, if they were getting tools and techniques to experiment with from their classes, I think their lives would be a, would be a great deal happier. That's one thing. But there is another thing, and that is a systemic failure of academia, and that is the emphasis on the wrong things. Students actually believe that what will make them happy is if they get into their top choice university. And what is their top choice university? For 95 plus, I think I'm being generous here, 95% or more of the students, they are the universities that are ranked the highest. Right, right. So it's not the place where they will you know, find the most interesting conversations, whether it's with professors or students. It's not where they can personally flourish. It's where they can be perceived as most successful. In other words, the wrong standards, the wrong evaluation. And then on top of that, 
the central focus is then getting them a job so that they can make money. And exactly the same thing applies, of course. You know, the same thing, by the way, applies before college to a high school. And, you know, one of the reasons why we used to live in New York City, and, you know, I took our eldest son at the time to look at different high schools. And the first thing that these high school, first of all, in their elementary school, they emphasized, you know, what high school you should go to and where you can, you know, get into and, you know, the best you can do. And in high school, when he was looking at high schools, they emphasized what college you can get into and what colleges, you know, their graduates get into. You know, that is what they emphasized first. They didn't emphasize here, you know, we're building a community here, you know, creating healthy relationships, you know, we'll engage you intellectually, you will, we'll, we'll, you will be able to, you know, pursue your passions. No, what college can you get into? You know, wrong values. And again, this is culture-wide, society-wide not just in the West, by the way, and, and in most of the world. So what are some of the challenges in happiness studies within a secular, pluralistic university environment? So I'm thinking, aren't many of the determinants of happiness tradition-specific, especially as it relates to maybe spiritual well-being that seems to be an important part of, of your model? So what are the challenges of happiness studies within a secular, pluralistic university space? Yeah, you know, I mentioned uh, Alain de Botton earlier as a role model when it comes to studying philosophy. One of his most important books is uh, called uh, Religion for Atheists. Religion for Atheists, which I strongly recommend for religious people and non-religious people. What he talks about there is uh, how we have, and he himself, by the way, is an atheist, but how we as a society have neglected and discarded the lessons from religion. And there are many important lessons there. So there is a great deal that we can learn from uh, our religious texts or from our religious practices, whether or not we are religious, whether, whether or not we believe in God. And one of the important lessons is the role of spirituality. Now, spirituality, yes, you can find it as you go to your you know, house of worship, you know, on whatever day of the week you choose to go. However, we can also find it in our workplace if we're doing something that is meaningful, something that is important to us, that matters. And in fact, workplaces that provide their employees with a sense of meaning and purpose, in other words, where their employees experience spiritual well-being, they're more successful, more effective workplaces. Their employees are less likely to leave. They're more likely to bring their full self to the work. They'll be more creative. They'll have better relationships. Just about every variable that you look at, every you know KPI, you benefit from spiritual well-being in the workplace. You look at it in the classroom. Uh, you know, I certainly don't advocate and don't promote religion in, in my classroom. You know, it's you know, each to his or her own. At the same time, I certainly hope that my students will experience spiritual well-being, a sense of meaning and purpose when they take that class. One interesting thing that we found is sometimes students, even when we present religious texts in a very pluralistic way, it's still seen as proselytizing. And I'm wondering if you've run into that at all. I run into that constantly. You know, the problem with much of what we're educating towards in the Western world is that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, if you don't want to believe in God, if you choose to be an atheist, that's fine. Again, each to his or her own. I think it's very, you know, freedom of choice, freedom of religion, freedom of belief. There are critical moral precepts. They're also important for happiness. We know that. 
At the same time, you know, religion has been around for thousands of years. Religion has made very important progress when it comes to leading a full and fulfilling life. Why discard these ideas? You know, there is so much wisdom in you know, biblical texts. There is so much wisdom, you know, in Buddhist texts. There's so much wisdom in, in the Bhagavad Gita. And we can learn and derive a great deal of benefit from reading and engaging with these texts, whether or not we believe that it was, you know, God or a supreme being that shared these texts with us. So do you think happiness studies can effectively be done online? Yeah. So is that a trick question? Yeah. No, no, that's a very honest question. Actually, you know what? I did not look specifically if your MA program is an online program because I wanted to ask this question. Good. So I'm glad you asked this question. So we really grappled with that when we launched the Happiness Studies Academy because we initially launched just the certificate program and only later the MA. And we had essentially, you know, three options broadly defined. One option was, you know, we're all doing it, you know, offline, the traditional way, we'll all get together. And because we know how important being in the same room, playing the same sandbox is. Second option was, uh, we'll go online 100%. You know, we have the technology today, it's a privilege, we can reach many more students through online. And of course, the third option was the hybrid model, which we, by the way, experimented with initially. We decided to go 100% online because of the benefit of reaching students from all over the world, also because it's a lot less expensive and we can be more accessible to more people. So our programs attract, as of today, more than 85 different nationalities. We have students from all these countries, and this is expanding literally by the day. And we like that. We want to be accessible. At the same time, we didn't want to lose the benefits, and there are real benefits, of being in the same classroom, of being in the same sandbox together. So what did we do? We created retreats, and we have retreats all over the world. You know, so our last one was in uh, Vancouver. Before that, it was in uh, Lake Como, Italy. We have one coming up in Shanghai next month. The month after that, we're meeting in Cartagena, in Colombia, literally all over the world. We have a retreat. Uh, we have one in Kenya and Brazil soon after. So we have retreats all over the world. And what these retreats allow us to do, first of all, they're completely optional. No one has to, you don't have to attend them to get the MA or to graduate from the certificate program. However, they're there for you. And we have hundreds and thousands of people attending those retreats where we do meet and we do interact and we have classes there and we have seminars there and we even dance there and we do yoga there, you know, the kind of things that we can't do when we're online, but things that certainly contribute to happiness. So this is was our way of making the masters or the certificate programs accessible while at the same time also gaining the many benefits of a face-to-face in-person interaction. Right. So is the online asynchronous? Both. Yeah, both. Okay. So some of it, is, you know, pre-recorded lectures, you can watch anytime, anywhere, because again, we have people from around the globe, meaning all time zones. At the same time, we also meet in person. So the MA meets for an hour and a half as a group. Actually, I just got, literally got off uh, a call uh, a, f- a few minutes before we started chatting And at the same time, we also have one-on-one interactions with faculty members for those who would like it. And no less important, 
we have what we call our HAT group meetings. HAT, H-A-T, stands for Happiness Accountability Team. And they meet regularly where they are accountability buddies to one another. And that is, of course, live. So what is the profile of the best faculty to teach a happiness course? Yeah, so this is something that, you know, I, I think about a lot, of course, because, you know, I hire the faculty who are going to be teaching. You know, of course, they need to have the fundamentals, the basics. They need to know the material. But there are many people who know the material. What I'm looking for are people who are grappling with the material, who are, yes, struggling with it, who are applying it, who are trying it out. You know, uh, Gandhi, you know, arguably the, or certainly one of the most important leaders of the 20th century, titled his autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. Not my finding truth, not my ultimate truth. It's my experiments with truth. And I think this applies to all great leaders and great teachers are great leaders. I want them to be experimenting with truths. I want them to be grappling with it. I want them to be trying it out. I want them to be struggling with it because then they're in the best place position to help others along the same path. What kind of disciplines do you find people coming from? You mean as our students? The faculty. I was thinking the faculty. What the kind faculty. of disciplines? Do they tend to be sociologists or psychologists? Where, where do they come from? Yes, yes, and yes. Our faculty members are clinical psychologists, therapists, gravitate towards teaching it. Um, no big surprise here. We have uh, positive psychologists, you know, graduates from Masters in Applied Positive Psychology programs. One of our faculty members right now is studying in the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program, but she's a lawyer by training. So, you know, because happiness studies is an interdisciplinary field of study, I do not only look for psychologists. You know, I would like uh, political philosophy thinkers. That's, you know, I'm thinking of one of our faculty for our upcoming cohort and lawyers and psychologists. And I really want this to be an interdisciplinary degree. So I always think of folks that are, the term I use is um, intellectually promiscuous. Actually, that, I think that's the best <laughs> profile. Folks that come out of a discipline or not, but, you know, read novels, watch movies, like poetry. And that's particularly within the academy particularly in the applied sciences, that's increasingly difficult to find someone who is just has a very wide interest. I, I find that's the best sort of faculty member to teach the happiness course. So is that your term, intellectually pr promiscuous? I don't know if I made that up or not. I might have yeah. heard it somewhere, but that's the term that I use when I'm thinking about who I want to bring in to help teach the course. Because we have, currently we have sections in nursing, engineering, there'll be one in public health. And so you kind of have to find the right, and we're very interested in the applied sciences because we're very interested in thinking through how do we organize the applied sciences towards human flourishing. And again, we use the term human flourishing, but it's real hard within those applied sciences because the training is so pragmatic, right? It's hard to find someone who's really a broad thinker and really can bring in knowledge from different disciplines and different traditions. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Intellectually promiscuous, it captures exactly what we're looking for. So, you know, I'm thinking, you said you're looking for the hard sciences. We have a biologist coming in as a faculty member and she has been studying the science of well-being for a few years now, and she's interested in the hard sciences and in the field of happiness studies. And if you think about it, you know, the father of happiness studies, to my mind, is Aristotle. Right. True. Now, Aristotle was intellectually promiscuous. He was a biologist. He was, you know, a philosopher in the old sense of the word. You know, he, yes, he studied metaphysics and epistemology, and he studied animals and human flourishing and love. 
So this is exactly, you know, we're looking for modern day Aristotles. So I do want to talk even more specifically about your MA program. It's really fascinating. So did Centenary approach you or did you approach them? I approached them. And, you know, for a long time, I was looking for a partner university. And it was very challenging, I must say, because there were many universities who, who said, yeah, we'll have a positive psychology master's degree because, you know, they're already out there and they're very successful. So we want the same. And I said, no, I'm looking for happiness studies. It's not just psychology. It's also philosophy and it's movies and it's poetry. Right, right. And that's where very often the relationship ended. They said, no, we want positive psychology. Or, you know, some of them said, that's okay, but, you know, so we'll teach uh, the philosophy of happiness in our philosophy department. I said, no, 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 I want this to be an interdisciplinary degree. And uh, it was very challenging for me to find it. And when it came to Centenary University, for me and for them, it was just a love at first sight. They loved, you know, the approach and I loved everything that was happening there. And it happened very quickly, but it took me years to find centenary years. Yeah. So with the profile of the student that registers for the MA in happiness, what do you think they think they're getting out of it? So, you know, we've really tried to define the profile because, you know, the marketing department said, you know, we have to find a profile and then we know who we're repeating to. And we really struggled and are struggling with that because there isn't a profile. You know, we have students who are therapists and coaches, and we have students who are lawyers and managers, and we have homemakers you know, full-time parents. It really is, they come from different places. What's common to them is that very often they want to increase their levels of happiness and always they want to do the same for others. Why? Because they realize it's an end in and of itself, as Aristotle uh, describes it, and because it's also a means towards an end. So for example, take our managers, and we have quite a few managers in our uh, cohorts, they understand that if they increase levels of well-being in their employees, their employees will become more creative, more productive, teamwork will improve, their organization will, or their team will become more effective, successful. In other words, happiness pays. It's a good right. investment. Right. We have lawyers who often talk about how, and again, this is uh, unfortunately a, a fact, lawyers are generally unhappy. It's one of the least happy professions. And they realize how important it is, not just in order to attract people into their law firm, but also to help them perform at their best. Because we are more creative and more productive when we increase levels of, of well-being. So we have people coming for similar reasons, and yet very different reasons. Similar reasons, the principle of increasing their own and others' happiness, that's similar to all. But where they apply it, that's very different among our students. So I, I did notice that some of the promotion materials were couched within the terms employee retention and shareholder value. Do you see this as a marketing department really trying to pitch the business leaders or because it's like very specifically in the promotional materials pitched in that, that sort of language? Also, the only ones we target, but also, you know, let me give you an example of why we're doing it and why I support doing it. So we did research, a lot of research. This was maybe 12 years ago on schools and well-being. So we created this, you know, at that time it was, I think it, it was a two-year program introducing more happiness in schools. I couldn't get it into schools. So what I did was I pleaded and begged with three close friends who are also uh, school principals. And I said, please do me a favor. Can we introduce this into your schools? And because they're my friends, they said yes. And we introduced it into their schools. 
And we ran the program for two years and we did a lot of research during those two years. And at the end, we published in a couple of eight journals, we published our findings. And our findings were that, yes, the program indeed increased levels of happiness and the program increased resilience levels and the program uh, improved teamwork in the classroom. And we also showed that grades improved. And as soon as we showed that and we published this finding, I had schools lining up wanting to introduce this program. And many of these principals, you know, they experience pressure from, you know, parents and the pressure that they feel is for higher grades, better performance. And then they see this program and they introduce the happiness. And to be, you know, honest, I don't care why they invite me. Right. Let right. them invite, you know, this program because it improves grades. And I feel the same way about organizations. Why they invite or why they send their employees to a program in happiness studies, you know, it could be because they really care about their employees becoming happier. That's great. Do they care about retention or being more profitable? And that's why they send their employees? So be it. I know how important this material is. Plus, I don't belittle the importance of retention and productivity and creativity and profitability because a company won't survive without that. So I noticed we're coming up on time, but I have one more question. So we think about perhaps the medieval university. It was easier to call it a uni University because there is a single unifying construct of inquiry, namely God, right? The contemplation of truth, that which is God, right? So God is no longer the unifying construct of inquiry at the university, which we know, and it hasn't really been replaced uh, by anything else. So in many ways, the university is very fractured. I mean, you've, you, you're in, well, you've been in universities, so you sort of, you know what I'm talking about. So, you know, maybe one unifying object of the university is, like we said before, is this helps students make money, but the university feels very fractured. It doesn't feel like a university. So to what extent might the concept of happiness and human flourishing serve as a unifier across various disciplines in the university? So I do think that, generally speaking, the good life can be this unifying theme of a university. Or, you know, Aristotle would argue that it's happiness or eudaimonia that is, uh, you know, the end towards which all other ends lead. So if I was creating university, yes, absolutely, I would call it, you know, the happiness university, or I would even say that, you know, the word happiness is redundant because what I mean by uni, a unifying theory would be flourishing happiness. Again, take your pick. Having said that, having said that, there's also something misleading about university. And, you know, now with all the sci-fi and uh, superhero movies, we're talking about the multiverse. Right, right. And, you know, may maybe talk about a multiversity instead of a university. And I know that some people have already picked up on that name. In general, what I would like to see here is both. So divergence as well as convergence. So yes, look at different disciplines, look at different ideas. So, you know, diverge, multiversity, and then ask how all these ideas can apply to your unique or your chosen area. And that's when you dive converge. So divergence in learning and then convergence, and then continuing this process. Because after you converge, I think it's important to diverge and learn. You know, if you think about it, this is how the ancient Greeks would learn. You know, Socrates would look at so many, you know, study so many different things and then talk about the concept justice. And then he would diverge again, you know, and talk about friendship. 
So this uh, interplay between convergence and divergence, between the uni and the multi, is uh, important. Interesting. So Tal, thank you so much. This was a really, really great conversation. I'm really excited about the work that you're doing. I'm really glad we had this this opportunity to uh, talk. And maybe there's an opportunity to get even more people together that are thinking this way uh, for an even broader conversation about um, what we can do to help these institutions that we work for. So thank you so much for the time. And uh, hopefully we'll, our paths will cross again someday. I very much hope so. Thank you for the work that you're doing. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.